for those who do not know me, my name is uh, Ewing, uh, Ewing Pyong, and uh, I am from Malaysia, so if you haven't caught the accent, I currently serve as a deacon in a Calvary Bible Church in Kalamazoo, and um, while attending Expositor Seminary in Grand Rapids. So yes, you could say that I'm uh, pretty much all over the place, and I'm pretty much omnipresent in the human way, humanly speaking, and probably that's why, you know, the UCIS uh, labels me as a resident alien. That is just, just weird, being very facetious here, obviously. Um, and they're probably not referring me to, uh, to the little green thing, even though my initials are E.T. <laughs> so according, but according to the IRS, you know, a, a resident alien they are probably referring to me as this, uh, as a foreign-born United States resident who's not an American citizen, an immigrant who has been legally and lawfully recorded as a resident of a country. Well, today, we'll be looking at a letter that was addressed to resident aliens. And if you would turn with me to the first letter of Peter, first letter of Peter, we'll be reading from chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. First Peter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God, the and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what time, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating that He predicted 
the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Let us pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that you hear us when we pray. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 tells us that whenever we ask anything according to your will, you hear us. So now as we ask, we ask you now, as we learn from your word, that you would open our eyes to see the wonders and the riches that is found in your word. Give us the grace to understand and to do what you have, been, what you have commanded us to do. Lord, may you bring clarity of, clarity of speech and thought to me as I teach and then faithfully teach and expound your word in a way that you would, you would receive all the glory. Amen. The title for this sermon is Unspeakable Joy. And it's brought about by the observation of the word joy or rejoice found in verses 6 and 8. One of my professors taught me that it is important to have a question in your mind when you're reading any material, and especially when the author is providing answers to the particular question. And the question that I have for us is, which I believe uh, this particular section of Scripture is addressing, is what is the Christian's source of joy? Or where does one obtain that inexpressible joy and full of glory? Well, in order to do that, we will need to understand the circumstances of the recipients of the letter. So picture this. It is 62 to 63 AD, about 30 years after our Lord was crucified and ascended into heaven. Heavy persecution was coming upon believers in the form of slander and physical torture as Christians were used as human torches to light up the streets of Rome. Now, this is where we get the name for the popular firework, the Roman candle, a torture mechanism whereby Christians were set ablaze for the amusement of Emperor Nero. How did this come about? Well, for one thing, one thing about Emperor Nero, that he was obsessed with building cities. So much so that he would burn his own city down just so that he could rebuild it up again. So when wind caught news about this, who does he blame? Christians. You know, it's ingenious because Christians were already frowned upon by the society. They claimed sole possession of the truth in a society filled with many idols. They proselytized, which was a quote-unquote shocking novelty in an ancient world. And furthermore, they speak of an impending judgment of fire. So it was perfect. 
It was the perfect scapegoat for Emperor Nero. So you see, Christ followers, the followers of Christ, are not only resident aliens, foreigners living in a different country in a different time, they are exiles. They are outcasts of the country, of the place they live in. Why? It's simply because they are not at home. They are not at home. Contrary to the law of the land they are living, they live according to a different constitution and they serve a different king. So you see, hearing about the Roman candle, hearing about such atrocities being committed in our days seems surreal to us who live in the 21st century America, which, by the way, is an anomaly in, Christ, in church history. But think about it. We live in a land that kills the unborn, promotes same-sex marriage, and brands the word of God as hate speech. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 18 to 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me first, before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not home yet. And this letter is relevant to us in this day, in our day, as we see the culture becoming, become increasingly hostile to the Word of God and what it teaches. And this letter is a letter from our home country to us. So coming back to this letter, how does the blessed Apostle Paul comfort them? How does the blessed Apostle Paul comfort us in light of such grim circumstances? You see there, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. He reminds them of their election in Christ as being chosen by God for salvation. You can almost hear the echoes of Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that even before the firmament of heavens and the earth was created, before the laws of physics, thermodynamics that govern the world was established, he chose you as a vessel of mercy, which he would fill with his love and grace, so full that it overflows. John fifteen sixteen, John was speaking to his disciples. He said, you did not chose me, but I chose you. The doctrine of election is a precious thing. And it would be a mistake to think that it was reserved only for people of the new covenant. There are many references to God choosing his people in the Old Testament. Prime example, Israel. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 to 8 reads, For you are a people holy to, God, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? How is this relevant to us? 
It's because God is unchanging. He is the same God yesterday and today and forever. This is what we meant by the immutability of God, that His character, His will, and His promises will never change. He is the embodiment of truth that never changes. Because that's what truth is. It never changes. And moving on, Peter expands that thought by showing the Trinitarian workings of his salvation. Look at verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, that all three members, or divine members, the Godhead of the Trinity, had a role in your redemption. One, the Father foreknew and plans our salvation. John six thirty seven reads, All the Father gives me will come to me. The Spirit sanctifies you. John sixteen thirteen. When the Spirit of truth comes, He guides you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. And finally, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. Now, some of you may ask, what does sprinkling with his blood mean? If you would turn to Exodus 24, 6 to 8, it explains it. Um, you, you are invited to turn there, but I could, I will, I'll just say it right here. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins. Half of the blood he threw against the altar. He took the blood of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and threw it, you know, in some translation, sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What does that remind you of? Well, the cup of the covenant. Right? The cup of the covenant. Luke twenty two twenty. This cup that was poured out for you is the new covenant in this blood. Hebrews 9 explains it more succinctly by saying, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats, which water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkle it on the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So all of these, right at the opening of the letter, he hasn't even got to the material, to the body of the letter, that Apostle Peter reminds, reminds the elect exiles of their position in Christ as a chosen race, a holy nation for God's possession, bounded by a covenant of blood. As we move on to the main body of the text, I want to highlight three important points, which I believe would help summarize verses 3 to 12 and answer our initial question. What is the Christian's source of joy? Number one, you can write this down. First, a great inheritance. A great inheritance, verses 4 to 5. Second, a tested faith. 
6 to 9, verses 6 to 9. And thirdly, a precious salvation, verses 10 to 12. So after Peter praises God and merits his and their salvation to God as a preamble to those three sections, he draws us to the first point a great inheritance, which in verse 6 reads, In this you rejoice. In in this you rejoice. So the first, so this inheritance, this great inheritance, have three qualities, which he outlines there. Number one, imperishable. This inheritance is imperishable which means that there is no corruption and it does not subject itself to any decay. And number two, undefiled, that this inheritance will never lose its luster and beauty. It has reference to Jesus' sinlessness or the purity of marriage. And number three, it's unfading. It lasts forever. One commentator wrote of this inheritance that, Rust do not, does not corrupt it, decay does not consume it, and death does not destroy it. And Peter, right here, he emphasizes it in the strongest possible term available in the Greek to describe the beauty and the certainty of the reward awaiting believers. Have you been on a vacation? You know, have you been on a vacation where the anticipation was better than the experience itself? You know, after months of planning and telling your friends all about it, coworkers about it, you arrive at your destination, and there will always be that nagging feeling of it being lackluster. Is this it? Is this it? You know, either it's caused by an unforeseen weather forecast or delays in transit or a looming end to that dream vacation. But this inheritance that Peter speaks about is greater than all of that. It's greater than any vacation, any possession, any relationship, any job or financial security that the world can offer. It never perishes, always beautiful and lasts forever. Do you know what what that is? What inheritance can the almighty creator of the universe give to his beloved child? What is this great gift? The answer is God himself. It is a relationship with him. John 3, 16, you know this verse, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You know, I used to think that this verse means that you have this extremely long life. No, it's just life and life and life and life and life. Okay, what is this eternal life? It's just really long. But that's way too far naive and trite. And in the same book, the same book of John, he clarifies it in John 17, 3. It defines eternal life as this, by saying, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this makes sense because in the same letter of John, in the opening uh, verses 1 to 4, it says that in him, referring to Christ, was life and the life was the light of men. For that's what we are. We are images of God. And we are created 
for, for him and to be with him in heaven. Chapter 2, 2 Peter um, of chapter 3, verse 13 reads, We are waiting for the heaven, new heavens and new earth, earth, earth in which righteousness dwells. Colossians uh, chapter 1, verse 13 states that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. To be with God is the greatest prize anyone could get. And this inheritance is not guarded by the power of men. It's not guarded by soldiers uh, or the bank even, but by the power of God. You know, it's no wonder Paul could say in Romans 8, which we have just read, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thirdly, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How, can, how, how sure can we be? You know, how sure is the salvation of the one who puts their faith in Christ? Can anyone answer that? Let me ask you in a different way. In other words, how does one gain access or citizenship to a country? How? Well, in Rome, a person can only legally gain citizenship through one of five ways. Number one, adoption, marriage, being freed as a slave, joining the military, or being born into a Roman family. But you see, Scripture applies all five of those ways to the Christian. Number one, we are adopted as sons. Adoption, Ephesians 1.5, he has predestined us to adoption. Galatians 4.9, adoption as sons. We are married to Christ. We are betrothed to one husband, the church, as the bride of Christ, 2 Corinthians 11.2. We are workers of Christ. You know, Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do heartily for the Lord and not for men. We are enlisted as soldiers of Christ. 2 Timothy 2, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ. And born again, we are born again. We are born into the family of God. John chapter 3, verse 3. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Do you see that the salvation of the one who has faith in Christ is so sure that it exhausts all of the possible ways to gain a citizenship of a kingdom? Therefore, it is impossible, impossible for the true child of God to lose his inheritance, his salvation. You take away this doctrine, and where is your hope? You will be cast into a whirlwind of doubt, ever wondering if you have lost your salvation along life's journey. So I would encourage you, take up the shield of faith. This is why Christ said, take up the shield of faith, which will quench the onslaught of the fiery darts of hell and trust in his saving work, for he who has begun a good work in you will bring 
into completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So you see you have a great inheritance. Second point, a tested faith. A tested faith. So the implication for the first point draws us, naturally draws us to the means of salvation. What is this means of salvation? Faith, right? Faith. And what kind of faith? How does one know if one has this saving faith? You see, not all faith is equal. And the Apostle Peter anticipates this question. You know, how does one get saved if, if the one who has salvation in Christ, right, and you will never lose their salvation, naturally you ask the question, well, how does one get saved? Right here. He anticipates, continues it, in this you rejoice, for though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, more precious than gold. Now, does God need to know whether you are saved? Does God need some kind of like a litmus test to test that whether you are saved? And does, it, does, the, does the God who has predestined his own people need to kind of test like, all right, you know, he, he has made this prayer, all right, I guess he's saved now. Does he look through the corridors of time and just, and just decide this is the person who gets saved? No. But what is the purpose of trials? Well, but it is, it turns out, it's actually for us. It is us who needs to know whether we are saved or not. You know, it's not for God. God is omniscient. He knows who are His. Where it is for us who needs to know who, whether we are saved or not. And you see right there, as gold is tried and proved and refined by fire, so faith must be proved and refined by the fires of temptation. As the heat separates the dross from the gold, so all superficiality must be separated from true saving faith, whether it is by self-reliance or our own wisdom or strength. One commentator writes, on an on An unskillful beholder may think it strange to see gold thrown into a fire and left there for a time. But he puts it there would be loath to but he that puts it there would be loath to lose it. His purpose is to make some costly piece of work. Every believer gives himself to Christ, and he undertakes to present himself blameless unto the Father, and not one of them shall be lost, nor one drachm of faith. They shall be found, and their faith shall be found when he appears. That faith that is here in the furnace shall be then made up to a crown of pure gold, and it shall be found unto the praise and honor and glory. I know that's a pretty long-winded, but I find this next one very helpful. Another writes, Faith without trial is like a diamond uncut, the brilliance of which has never been seen. Untried faith is such little faith that some have thought it as no faith at all. What a fish would be without water or bird without air, that would be a faith without trial. Trials are necessary for the Christian. God has only one son without without sin, but he never had a son without trial, and he never will. 
until he has taken us all home out of this world. So why should we expect that God would deal better with us than he does with the rest of his chosen? Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Examine yourself to see whether you are of the faith. Test yourselves. Spurgeon writes, Let this be lying upon a bed of sickness and just revel at that one thought that before God made the heavens and the earth and laid the pillars of the firmament in their gold sockets, he set his love upon me. Upon the breast of the great high priest he wrote my name, and in his everlasting book it stands never to be erased, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Last point. A precious salvation. The prophets who prophesied about this salvation searched and inquired carefully. And it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. The prevalent view in evangelicalism is that the prophets wrote better than they knew. But, however, I would like you to read the text more closely. Look right there. It says that they inquired what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. The prophets knew what they wrote, and they knew what was revealed to them, but the only thing that was hidden to them was the timing and the identity of the Messiah. This is not strange, for not even the Son of Man knew, knows the day or the hour or the end of the, of end of the age, but only the Father, Matthew 35, verses 36. And yet, it is true that we are in possession of all that God has to say to us in the complete and inerrant 66 books of the Word of God. Verses 12 continues, In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I find this illustration really helpful from a preacher. Have you ever wondered, you know, what's it like to be an angel? What's it like to be near to God with wings, flying in the air, having immense power, even power to even destroy nations? Not that we want to destroy nations, but still having that kind of authority and power. And this is the same kind of wonder that the angels have of us. What's it like, they ask, what's it like to receive mercy from the Most High God? What's it like to be redeemed and forgiven? Beloved, angels do not receive salvation. They can only gaze from afar. Once they break God's command, they are com condemned forever. And in fact, hell was reserved for Satan and his angels. And Satan's goal is to drag as many humans as he can with him. Salvation is not a common thing. It is a precious commodity. And we need to cherish it. So where does this leave us? These three points. You know, you see that the medicine for the lack of joy 
is not found in better circumstances or your works or your attitude. It is not the fake it or until you make it mentality. It is only found in a change of perspective. That you know that you have a great inheritance, that you know that you have a tested faith, a genuine faith, that you know that you have a precious salvation. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. The hymn writer writes and sings, Set your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And in fact, we are going to sing that beloved hymn in a moment. But before we do so, I'd like to invite you, you know, to those who are listening on the sidelines and do not know the Lord to consider the end and the very purpose of your life. Do not, be, do not worry about whether you're chosen or not. Don't worry about that. For if you are, you will hear His voice. And that beckons you to come. All you who, are, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And let today be a day of salvation. For there is great joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let us close in prayer. Father, we hear you in your word. And we thank you that you so loved the world and gave your only Son that whosoever believes in you believes in him, will have everlasting life. So now, Lord, help us as we turn our eyes upon Christ, for it is only in him that we find joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Lord, help us to apply these truths in our lives that we may present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. We thank you for the work that you have started in us and continues to do so until the day of your coming. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. So now for the benediction. I'm going to be reading from Numbers. This is the Aaronic prayer of blessing uh, to the nation of Israel. And uh, it applies to us as well. That may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You may go in peace.